We are in a series called Cross Reference, and tonight is part three. This is a series, <clears throat> it's very practical, um, just to help us understand uh, God's Word in a better way. So uh, we want to help you understand the plan of Scripture, the plot of the Bible, because when you understand that and you're reading, you can better understand God's purpose for your life as you study God's Word. Uh, we're, we're finishing up the Old Testament tonight, and then uh, the next time uh, we're together, we're going to be uh, studying the New Testament, and so we're partway through. There's a quote I read years ago when I was a teenager, and I, in fact, it's written in the Bible that I had uh, through my teenage years, and here's what it says. The New, the New Testament, the New is in the Old contained, the Old is in the New explained. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old portrayed. The old, the Old Testament, is in the new displayed. So there's great value in understanding the Bible. Once you see it kind of unfold in the plan of Scripture, you can see what we've chosen to call cross references because God's word is written with the end in mind from the very beginning and the cross is the center of it all. So we've been following a little plan. We've been going through the sections of, of the Bible. Uh, we've been going through law and land, rain, rebuild, and tonight we're going to continue on. Uh, when we talked about the books of the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they're often referred to as the books of Moses because tradition says he wrote them. We call them the Pentateuch, meaning uh, five books, but the Jews call them the Torah, the law, because the law of God, the commandments of God in those five books are the most important feature. And, and they point ahead and they give us so many shadows and pictures. And one of the most beautiful that's given in those five books, of course, is the tabernacle. And in addition to all of that, they're filled with familiar stories that you know and love and tell your kids and your grandkids. It's a foundational part of the word of God. And then after we get through that section, next we move into the promised land, the land that God promised to the Jews. And this is just a three-book section, Joshua through Ruth, but it's, it's kind of sad and kind of triumphant at the same time. Joshua leads the people in, and he takes the land, and they divide up the land. And so now Israel, that's been landless for half a millennia, 500 years, now they have territory of their own. They've got a land. But no sooner do they get in there than they start worshiping pagan gods of people around them. And in the book of Judges, we see a, a, a scary, rapid decline. Joshua's generation knew the Lord. The elders that outlived Joshua, they told all Joshua's stories, but they didn't have the experience for themselves. And a second generation usually raises third generation kids, spiritually speaking. And so there arose another generation that not only did they not know the Lord, but they didn't even remember what he had done for Israel, and they served other gods. It's very sad. But in the middle of the, 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 the period of the Judges, in fact, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth were originally one book. And in the middle of that period, the last verse of the book of Judges says, in that time, everyone did, there was no king in Israel, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like today. But in the middle of a generation like that, God raised up a young woman, a pagan woman from Moab. Uh, she's a Moabite, but Ruth ends up in Israel following her mother-in-law, Naomi. And in the middle of an era like that, God raises up that young lady and she gets married to an important and wealthy Israelite named Boaz and they have children and grandchildren and on down it goes. And that lady gets to become the great-grandmother of King David. That's amazing. That should never have happened. But it happened in the middle of a period where everything's going haywire. But do you know God can raise up people that know God and people that are anointed and people that are moral and righteous and godly no matter what's going on in the world. 
And so Ruth not only got to become King David's great-grandmother, she got to be in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story. And, and then after that, we talked about reign. This is the period where the kingdom of Israel comes to being, and, and they begin these books, uh, which go from 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, six books. They begin with the prophet Samuel, and they cover a united kingdom, one nation under Saul, first of all, and then under David, they each reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon, he reigns for 40 years. But the kingdom divides at the end of Solomon's reign. And we go into something that the scholars call the divided kingdom of Israel. There's 10 tribes in the north, north and they're called Israel. And their capital is Samaria. <clears throat> and there's two tribes in the south. They're called the kingdom of Judah. And their capital is in Jerusalem. And they are back and forth at war. It's civil war. It's horrible. It's a divided kingdom. And these books end with both nations in captivity because of sin. The northern kingdom falls first because they didn't even have one good king over all those years. The southern kingdom hangs on a little while because they're pulled both ways. A good king will change everything, tear down the pagan altars and restore worship of the one true God, but then he'll die or he'll be overtaken or conquered and then another bad king will arise and it all starts all over again. But the southern kingdom, because they had a few good kings, a few good leaders, they survive longer. But eventually the northern kingdom goes into captivity to the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom goes into captivity to the Babylonian Empire. And, and that's basically 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And then 1st and 2nd Chronicles kind of repeats a lot of the information, but with a focus on the kingdom of Judah. So uh, that's kind of where, we, uh, where we've been kind of hanging our hat for the last few lessons. The Bible is not arranged chronologically. The Bible is arranged in groups of books with similar content. Um, so uh, tonight we're going to talk about the books of poetry and prophecy, and I show you this chart not to scare you like, is there a test? I show you this chart to show you that all those little names, um, they're interspersed. The prophets prophesied at different times in different places to different people. But you can see this. The yellow line is the kingdom of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. And they go into Assyrian captivity far earlier than the green line, the kingdom of Judah, simply because there were good kings. And it's, it's all very historical, so it can be a little challenging to read through, but there are some wonderful, inspirational stories and lessons to learn in there. Finally, at the end of the Old Testament, we enter a phase called rebuild. Everyone say rebuild. So after the captivities, they're allowed to come back. These three books, Ezra through Esther, uh, they belong at the end of the Old Testament chronologically, but they're not put there. They come right at the end of 2 Chronicles because all those historical books are put together. So sometimes you're reading the Bible and you turn one page and it's like you skipped a thousand years and you're thinking, what in the world? And that's what happens because the Bible groups uh, books of similar type together. But this actually happens at the end of the Old Testament. And in these books, the Jews are finally allowed to return to Jerusalem after their 70-year captivity in Babylon. And the Babylonian Empire has now fallen to Medo-Persia. And, and Cyrus, a, a ruler, he allows them to go back and rebuild the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah has a book and, uh, in here. And Ezra and Nehemiah encourage them to first rebuild the temple and then rebuild build the city walls and then even in that time it's sort of like the story of Ruth even in that time which is so up and down and in and out and so tumultuous and and so terrible in so many ways and the people are suffering so greatly God reaches in when a wicked man named Haman wants to wipe out the Jews and he almost would have succeeded except God reached down and called a young lady named Esther she ends up uh, being the queen of the Persian Empire, and she overturns that plot. And so that's kind of where the Old Testament ends chronologically. And tonight we move on, and the books we'll talk about tonight, they are interspersed all through here. The books of poetry and the books of prophecy 
uh, they happen all the way through the historical books that we've talked about. But again, they're grouped together. All the poetical books are grouped together. There's five of them. And, uh, and then there's uh, 17 uh, prophetic books. And somebody just had a little heart fluctuation, but it's really not going to be that long. It's okay. Everyone say poetry. This is a beautiful section of the Bible. The 17 books we've just talked about are historical. The law and, and, and the land, and then you, you move into that time of, of the historical books. They are concerned with the nation of Israel. What's beautiful about the poetical books and why these are some of the most loved books in the entire Bible are because these are not concerned with the land or the nation so much as they're concerned with the heart of the individual. The first 17 books that we talked about, they have to do with the Hebrew race. But these books have to do with the human heart. You start reading them and they're immediately accessible to you. Uh, some of the most uh, powerful writing in the Bible. Now, they're not the only poetry in the Old Testament. There's songs in other books. The prophet Isaiah has a song in his book that's very beautiful. And so, so these aren't the only, but this is the longest and most important collection of poetic writing in the scripture. It's absolutely beautiful. And these books portray the many experiences that God's people have in this life. So they're of great <clears throat> spiritual value. The book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. It's older than Genesis. It was written sometime between Genesis 11 and 12, along in there, about the time Abraham was leaving Ur of the Chaldees to go follow God, uh, Job lived. So his book is actually the oldest book in the Bible, and it was written way back in the time of the patriarchs. The Psalms, they were collected primarily during David's reign, and then the remaining three books... They were written during Solomon's reign, during three distinct periods. Now, I, I love this. Years ago, we did a little series here at the church. If, if you're as old as I am, you might remember this. It was called Life Grid. And I like to imagine these five books uh, as a grid. I like charts, you can tell. Um, I, with Proverbs and Job teaching us about our external circumstances. Everyone say circumstances. So Proverbs and Job, they teach us about our circumstances because life can be good or bad. How many have lived long enough to know that at certain times life's good and other times it's bad? Yeah. And, and, and we don't like to say bad, but really it is if we're honest. And then Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, they teach us about our internal emotions because your heart, as you're going through life, can either be empty or it can be full. And then the Psalms teach us, of course, about our relationship with God through worship and prayer. Because, brothers and sisters, prayer and worship will sustain you no matter what your heart feels like. And no matter what circumstances you're facing, prayer and worship will sustain you. So I want to plunk these books on a chart as we proceed through. So let's talk about Proverbs. The book of Proverbs contains the most important wise sayings that King Solomon wrote or collected from other cultures. The subject of Proverbs is wisdom. If you want to be smart, read Proverbs and follow it. It's neatly arranged in 31 chapters, which gives you a chapter a day, even for the longest months of the year. But see, Proverbs teaches us that wisdom is not a matter of the mind or intellect. It's a matter of the heart. Real wisdom at its most basic level is simply obedience to God. Bottom line, if you obey God, you're wise. If you don't, you're not wise, no matter how many degrees follow your name. And Proverbs is an, is an amazing little book. It's all these nuggets of wisdom, but it also introduces us to an amazing cast of characters. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is a few. Proverbs introduces us to the simple person. Everyone say simple. A simple person has no life experience, so they make needless mistakes because they just don't know yet. Uh, all of your teenagers, automatically simple. All of your children, automatically simple. And probably half the adults that you know, automatically simple. In, in fact, in any area of life where you lack experience, you can be really smart in one area. You ever met one of these people? They are really smart on computers, for example. 
but they have no sense. You ever met one? Don't point. But so, so there are areas where you can be simple even if you're smart in other places. <clears throat> and a simple person, the problem with being simple, a simple person isn't, it's not an insult, it's just a fact. They lack experience. And a simple person, the problem with being simple is by the time you figure out that you're simple, you won't be simple anymore, but you will have made some terrible mistakes. And so the best thing to do if, you're, if you lack experience is hook yourself to a wise person. Uh, hook yourself to the word of God, and that will help you. An another person we meet in Proverbs is the fool. Now, a fool is simply a person who has a carnal perspective on life. And because they have a carnal perspective, they dabble in the things of the world and, and they don't foresee the long-term consequences of their sin and the Bible calls them a fool. It's, it's, it's very plain and very blunt. And then another person we meet in Proverbs is the scorner. The scorner has a critical attitude. They oppose godliness. They oppose submission to the word of God. They're just critical, uh, a scorner. And they try to co control people through criticism. And uh, it's just, it's not nice. And then we meet this person in, in Proverbs. We meet the sluggard. I love that word, the sluggard. I'll just say it because it's fun. Say sluggard. Mm -hmm. If you need a new word to call somebody, that's a good Bible word. They just have a lazy lifestyle. They won't be consistently committed to anything. Not their job, not their relationship with God, not their friends. They're a sluggard. They're lazy. They expect everybody else to bail them out all the time. And then finally, refreshingly, and this isn't everybody, but this is a, a, a little bit of the cast of characters in Proverbs. We meet the wise person. And a wise person has an eternal perspective. They put God's kingdom first. And the whole book of Proverbs exists to ask get us to ask a question. Is my action, is my decision, is my direction wise? Because usually human beings, when we make choices, we run our decisions and our options through a different filter, and this filter can lead you into trouble. We usually ask, is it right or wrong? <clears throat> and if the word of God says, thou shalt not, we say, oh, that's wrong. But you know, there's a lot of things that the Bible gives us suggestions and hints and directions, and it doesn't come right out and say, thou shalt not. So the question is, see, the problem is human beings have this unerring capability to talk themselves into something and say, well, there's nothing against it in the Bible, and pastor didn't technically preach against it, so I should be able to do it. See, you're playing the right or wrong game. Don't ask, is it right or wrong? Ask this. If I do this, if I decide this, if I take this direction, honestly, where will I be? Where will my family be five years from now? Will we be closer to God or will we be dis more distant from God? See, you're not asking, is it technically right or technically wrong? You're asking, is it wise? That's why the book of Proverbs is in the Bible. And here's what Proverbs says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's just the starting point. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now, before we leave Proverbs, you probably know a person who did what was wise according to the Bible. They lived for God all of their life, and they still had problems. Anybody know anybody like that? They, they tried. They did everything. They kept the commandments, but they still had problems. And, and here's a, another question. Have you ever known somebody that just flaunted God's word and, and they disobeyed and ignored God's commandments and yet they prospered? Anybody ever know anybody like that? You're scared to ask it. Have you ever, here's a better question. Have you ever known somebody who raised their family to know God but today, tonight, their kids are backsliders? So, so I thought Proverbs was trying to help us set direction. What about verses like this? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What about that? I know people whose kids departed from it. There's a fundamental principle that you need to understand if you're going to get the most out of Proverbs. See, Solomon, he, he didn't write this book the way every other book in the Bible is written. He collected Proverbs. Some of them come from Israel. Many of them came from other nations. 
They're just wise sayings. And I like to say it this way. When you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. Proverbs are probabilities. If you save your money, you're going to be provided for in your old age. That's a probability. But I know people that save their money and then a tragedy happened and they're not supported in their old age. The, the Proverbs says, you know, if you're a fool and you spend all your money, um, you, you, you won't have anything. And then came along Serb. Sorry, couldn't resist. I've waited to say that for 16 months. <clears throat> Solomon collected these wise sayings from everywhere else. So, so Proverbs is, is uniquely positioned in the Bible. It gives us human wisdom, probabilities. This is probably the way your life will turn out if you do what is right. But Proverbs is designed to show us that human wisdom can sometimes fall short. That's why we need to point our lives toward God, not just toward wise handling of our finances or our life or whatever. And that's why the Bible includes another book, the book of Job. You see, Proverbs tells us that good things usually happen when we do what is wise. Everyone say, life is good. So life is good in Proverbs. But the book of Job tells us that bad things sometimes happen to people even when we do what is wise. Everyone say, life is bad. So Job's in the Bible for that reason. It is the oldest book in the Bible, and it's about the oldest problem of humanity, the problem of suffering. The Bible tells us Job was perfect and upright, and he shunned evil, and he had integrity. So there was no reason at all for God to allow him to go through all the problems he did. And I'm not going to take time, but in one day, Job's life literally fell apart. He lost his kids. He lost his, uh, his animals. He lost everything that was financial blessing to him. It, it was awful in one day. Now, here's the key to the book of Job, the oldest book in your Bible. Job knew what had happened to him, but he didn't have any idea why it had happened to him. But because we read with hindsight, we are allowed in the beginning of the book of Job to visit the throne room of heaven and hear God and Satan discuss the man Job. He doesn't know what's happened, but we do. We know who has caused all the devastation. It's the devil. But Job didn't have the benefit of that knowledge. His friends and his wife blamed Job for every problem he was facing and they doubted his integrity and his precious little wife even said, why don't you just curse God and die? And I can collect the insurance money. Many people say that the theme of Job is the question, why do righteous people suffer? Well, if that's the question behind the book of Job, then it's a lousy book because it never answers that question, really. Why do godly people suffer? This book actually answers a different question. Here's the question. How do godly people go through suffering? What Job couldn't see, but we know because we're reading the book later, is that his problems were because of a conversation between God and the devil. You know what was happening in heaven? The devil had come to appear before God. He was allowed to. And, and God allowed him to talk about Job. Do you know why the devil wanted to hurt Job so much? Is because God in heaven was bragging on Job. That's one of my servants. They have integrity. They serve me. They worship me. They love me. And the devil basically said to God, you're no better than the mafia. You bless Job, and so he gives you worship. You're just like the mafia. You know, you, you collect bribes. And God said to the devil, it was God's fault that Job was in this problem. Because God said, okay, devil, you can take his family, you can take his kids, you can make his wife turn against him, you can take his animals, and you can take his houses, they can collapse in an earthquake, you can take it all. The only thing you can't take, you can even take his health. The only thing you can't take is his life. And God said to the devil in heaven at the beginning of the book of Job, but I know Job. 
And if you take everything from him but his life, with whatever he's got left in his life, he's still going to worship me. I think there's some people very much like Job in this auditorium tonight. There are people that have gone through pain, people that have gone through suffering, people that have gone through sickness and loss and heartache, people that have gone through funerals and hospital stays and all kinds of stuff. But here's what I know. God brags on some of his people in 2021 and says, you can take everything you want, devil, but when you get done doing your worst, they're still gonna lift up whatever they got left and they are going to worship me. See, Job's trials were actually battles in the heavenlies. He just couldn't see it. And the devil got so mad. He accused God. He said, you've put a hedge around Job that I can't get through. And that's true because the only time the devil can ever touch your life is when God Almighty gives him permission. And you can be assured that if God gave the devil permission to mess with you, then God is playing chess. He's already got seven moves figured out in front of the devil. And when you get through whatever the devil's put on you, God is going to have a higher purpose and you are going to be okay and God's going to turn your uh, your trial into a blessing. That's what I know. The devil got so mad he said, you put a hedge around him. Tear the hedge down. God said, okay. And the devil, he gloated. He, he was so glad to be able to tear that hedge down. Off go the lands and off go the houses and off go the animals and the livestock and, and then the kids are killed, all ten of them. And it's just awful. And the devil gloats because he's just torn down the hedge that God built around Job. And then the devil stands back in horror because once he gets done tearing down God's hedge, he figured it out finally that Job had built a hedge around his little old self that was inside the hedge that God had built around him. And here's Job's hedge in one verse. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will maintain mine own ways before me. I don't care what life throws at me. I don't care what the devil does to me. I am going to maintain my way before God. And if God allows me to die, I'm going to praise him with my last breath on the way out of here don't think that just because Job said that that it was easy Job had some dark days and nights he said this behold I go forward God's not there I go backward I can't perceive him I can't feel anything on the left hand I know he's working but I can't behold him and he seems to be hiding himself on my right hand and I can't see him here's what he said this is the hedge that Job built But God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Here's what Job said. This is the end of the book of Job. I can't tell you why I am still suffering. And I can't tell you when I'm going to stop suffering. But I can do one thing. I can show you how I'm coming out of this. Whenever I get out of it and however God delivers me, when I come out on that day, watch me, devil. I'm not coming out bitter or backslidden. I'm coming out of this like gold. I don't care what life throws at me. Sometimes life is bad, but I'm coming forth as gold gold. You see, Proverbs tells us that good things usually happen when we do what is wise. Life's good. But the book of Job is in your Bible to tell you that even if you do everything right and everything perfect and everything wise, sometimes bad things happen. But the word of God would suggest to you, do what is wise regardless. Serve God regardless. Hmm. Oh my goodness, boy, we could camp out there a while, but let's move on or we'll be here till midnight. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon. He was the third king of Israel, the builder of the temple, the most magnificent building in the ancient world. The wisest and richest man who ever lived. And people came from everywhere to ask Solomon questions and see his kingdom. Solomon writes this little book near the end of his life after he's used his wisdom and his wealth to explore life fully and experiment with everything. Not all of it good, by the way. He's married hundreds of, of women, princesses, and concubines, and oh my goodness. He's got over a thousand mother-in-laws. 
and, and jet lag. Remember that? Before COVID, jet lag. I got jet lag. I can say anything I want, and I'll blame jet lag. <laughs> I love teaching Bible study. Um, Solomon, <laughs> he's tried everything. He's gone everywhere. He's done everything, and not all of it very good. All to find out what is the purpose of life. And here's his conclusion when he looks at life. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that, that, that word, he uses that 38 times, vanity. And it means emptiness or futility. Something that vanishes quickly and it leaves nothing behind. So what he's saying, this is the conclusion of Solomon on life. The wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived said this. Life's empty. So if you're under 50, don't start reading this book and not finish it. Because if you quit in the middle, we'll find you on the bridge trying to jump off. Get all the way to the end. If you're going to start, finish. Because it seems so depressing. But even in this book that seems so negative and so depressing, and Solomon's old, and, and, and he's, he's had a lot of hard knocks in his life, even though he had so many privileges and perks, but there's a secret even in this negative sounding book of Ecclesiastes. And it's found in a little phrase. Under the sun. S-U-N. That's used 29 times. Solomon says, if this is all there is to life. Paying bills and working. And, and then somebody else comes and takes everything you had. And they sell it or they enjoy it. And they didn't work for it. If this is all there is to life, then life is empty. But there is more to life than this. Because there is something beyond the sun. It's not just all this existence under the sun. He says this. I returned and I saw under the sun. See, that's the phrase he likes. Down here on this planet, the race is not to the swift. The battle's not to the strong. Bread doesn't always go to the wise. Riches don't always go to men of understanding. Favor doesn't always go to men of skill. In other words, you can do everything so good and it doesn't work. Time and chance happeneth to them all. And what Solomon is saying to us is that the most frustrating thing about human life on earth is that it is so random. You never know when you're going to get the text message that wrecks your week or the phone call that devastates your life. It's so random. And we are left feeling empty. But it's the very futility of life it's the tragedies and trials that afflict human beings that finally, if we're wise, force us to look beyond the sun. If you only live for things under the sun, you'll never be able to fathom what God is doing in your life. Life just goes around and around and around and it leaves your heart empty. But if you will put God first, then you begin to see where your little story fits into God's big story. Beyond the sun, God is accomplishing his purpose. And it doesn't matter how you feel right now. If you're a child of God, you are in God's plan. You are in God's will. And you just need to keep trusting him. Ecclesiastes says this. I know, Solomon says, whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. And God does what he does that men should fear before him. So there's a message even in this negative sounding uh, little book of Ecclesiastes. Now, we already did a whole series on this, so I'll motor through this. But I, I can't not mention it. Everyone say, Song of Solomon. Oh my goodness, I love that series. Amazing. Song of Solomon is, is regarded as one of the most difficult books in the Bible. You remember this. It looked like it might not even be included in the canon of Scripture at one point because it refers to intimate relationship between husband and wife. But the deeper meaning of this little book, of course, is an allegory. It's a beautiful portrait of the relationship between God and man. And it jumps all over the place. You remember this. Back and forth between speakers and scenes. And it moves back and forth through time. And it includes dream sequences that kind of throw you off. And it circles back on itself. But the basics are this. That King Solomon, the owner of the whole country, he owned a vineyard up north of Jerusalem about 50 miles away. And in that vineyard, 
among all the peasants, among all the paupers, among all the laborers was a little peasant girl that's nameless. She's just called the Shulamite and her family treats her harshly and uh, we called her Cinderella in our little Solomon series. It's, it's amazing. And she was treated so harshly and her life was so hard. And she developed this terrible sense of inferiority because who could ever love a little pauper peasant girl like her? But one day Solomon, disguised as a shepherd, comes to his vineyard. She doesn't know he's the king, but he falls in love with her. And here's what he says about her. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. That's how Jesus looks at his church. We're covered by his blood in covenant with his name. We're filled with his spirit. We love him. We worship him. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you like your critics see you. He doesn't see you like your enemies see you. When he looks at you, he says, you're all fair, my love. There's no spot in thee. And, and so Solomon promises her, I'm coming back to get you. We're going to be married. And she still thinks she's marrying a shepherd. And, and, and most of the book is just her longing for him. It's, it's amazing. I'm sure it was very similar for Beverly this week while I was away. She was just pining and longing and looking up at the sky, waiting for the plane to come. And I, I'm sure. The only thing that's changed in her life, she's jet lag. The only thing that's changed in her life is, is, is she still has to work in the vineyard. She's still abused and mistreated. She's still a pauper and a peasant. Her garments are still tattered and her face and hands are still grimy and grubby and she's a mess. The only thing that's changed is now she has a promise. Her beloved is coming back to marry her and he's going to take her away from all this. She doesn't even have any idea he's the king. She just thinks he's a shepherd. And she, she longs for him all through that book. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions... They hearken to your voice. Cause me to hear your voice. I fell in love with that little verse when we were going through Song of Solomon. Other people hear your voice, Jesus. Cause me to hear your voice. Cause me to hear your voice. And the day finally came. You know all this. We, we whole series, my goodness. You can teach this. The day finally came when her beloved returned as promised. But when she looked in his face... He didn't show up as a shepherd. He showed up as the king of the whole country who owns everything. He was, and this is so important, so beautiful. He was the king who became a pauper so that a pauper could become his queen. And the whole story of Song of Solomon points us to this. My beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Not much has changed in your life since you became a Christian and started following Jesus. You still go to work. You still got people that don't like you, give you grief. You still got problems and some of you got sickness you're dealing with or family tensions you're dealing with. Not much has changed in your life except you're holding on to a promise. And someday this one that is despised and rejected by the world, they just think he's a humble shepherd. They just think he's a baby that was born in a manger. But someday he's coming back. And when he does, you're going to look in his face and realize he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he owns everything. He created the universe. And Oh, my. See, in Ecclesiastes, the heart is empty because of the futility of life. But in Song of Solomon, the heart is full because we have a promise that we're holding on to. Life under the sun isn't the end because the sun, S-O-N, is coming back to receive his people unto himself. Amazing. So the, the books of poetry, you can see it there on the screen, they form four quadrants. And if you live long enough, you will visit each one of those four quadrants. Sometimes your heart will be full and life will be good. Sometimes your heart will be empty and life will be bad. And there's every combination there. But it's possible to maintain an equilibrium spiritually because the book of Psalms is in the middle of it all. It contains every kind of circumstance we face. It contains every kind of emotion we feel. But Psalms helps us to pray and worship through everything life throws at us and because the collection of of chapters and psalms is so long uh, psalms is organized into five large books but it contains many smaller collections the psalms of ascent 
Psalm 120 through 134, they sang those when they walked, made the procession up to the temple. Uh, the Hallel Psalms, they sang that at Passover, Psalm 111 through 118. So there's all these little collections of psalms uh, in that book. But at the heart of every chapter, brothers and sisters, is praise and prayer and worship. Sometimes David is mad. He actually prays, God, break out their teeth. I've never prayed that. I've prayed worse, but I've never prayed that. <laughs> regardless of your current emotional state, regardless of your current circumstance, you can find yourself in the Psalms because it's poetry and because it's inspired by God. This book has an exceptional ability to help meet the deepest needs of the human heart. It contains prayers that you can just take them and pray them. You can act like you wrote it. Literally. It's, it's amazing. Like this one. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And, and God, I'm falling apart. But uphold me with thy free spirit. You can take that verbatim and pray it. Yes, you can, and it'll bless your life. See, psalms can function as a handbook for prayer and praise and worship. Just take a psalm and read it aloud slowly while you focus your attention on God, and I promise you that will help your prayer life immensely. In our always-on, 24-7 culture, it's absolutely necessary to disconnect from media and noise and demands and busyness once in a while if we want to connect with God. And Psalms can help us do exactly that. You know this. We did a series. You know this. You could teach this. The Word, Psalm 119. This is my favorite verse in Psalm 119. And there are so many to choose from, but this is my favorite, and I pray it often. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Oh my goodness, I, it's been thousands of times probably I've said that to Jesus. Uh, we have long talks in rental cars and all, it's just amazing. I, I don't know how many times I've prayed that. God, order my steps in your word. Whew. And, and so Psalms is in your Bible to teach you to pray, listen, Pray the scriptures. You say, I don't know how to pray. Pray the scriptures. I, I get bored when I pray. I, I, get, I can't focus when I pray. Pray the scriptures. You don't have to pray the whole 150 chapters. Pick one. Pick six verses. Pick ten verses. Pick one verse and pray the scriptures. I consider the book of Psalms like booster cables for your prayer life. If you can't pray, if you're distracted and unfocused when you pray, read a psalm slowly and aloud and say those words to God. This is one, if you've never done this, this is one to start your day with. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. This is the important part. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. In the Hebrew, the words my prayer aren't in that last line. It just says, in the morning, Lord, I will direct in other words, God, I'm going to pray before my day begins so you can send me where you want to send me and order my steps the way you want to order them and direct my decisions the way you want to do it. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, we need to shift gears for the last little section. We're not going to be too long. But, but would you just lift up your hands and, and just pray for a second? Because the Holy Ghost is visiting Bible study tonight for two reasons. One is the Holy Ghost is in you and you brought him in with you. But the other reason is where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, I will be there in the midst of them. And he is here tonight. And, and the whole reason for this series is to help us 
grapple with the word of God because the word of God can bless your life like nothing else you've ever experienced. And right in the middle of the word of God is 150 chapters of prayer. They cover every kind of feeling and every kind of circumstance. They cover every kind of thing you'll face in life and you can find yourself in the Psalms and pray your way through what life has thrown at you. Oh my goodness. Give the Lord praise in this room. My goodness. And at the end of the Old Testament, now the books of poetry, they're interspersed between David and Solomon and uh, Job way back in the early part of the Old Testament. And the books of prophecy are the same. They're interspersed all through the Old Testament. The word prophet occurs more than 660 times in the Bible. Two-thirds of those references are in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is filled with prophecy. Called by God and anointed by His Spirit, the prophets spoke God's Word to people who had in one way or another distanced themselves from God. And there were many prophets scattered across the pages of Israel's history. Enoch, Moses, Deborah, Huldah, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, many others. Lots of prophets. Prophets arose when priests failed to teach God's law to the people. Prophets arose when kings and judges failed to govern the kingdom or the country according to God's principles. Prophets arose when God's people stubbornly persisted in worshiping other gods and living the lewd lifestyles of their pagan neighbors. The prophets were often the last voice calling people back to God. The prophets didn't earn a living from their calling. They had other jobs. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests. Moses and Amos were shepherds. Deborah was a judge. Huldah was a teacher. So, so prophets had other jobs. They didn't make money doing this. The records of the early prophets are woven into the history of Israel in the historical books. You read about the prophet Nathan that talked to David, the prophet Samuel that anointed David. So their stories are woven through the historical books. But once the kingdom divided, it just is done differently in the word of God for reasons that only God would know. Their words began to be written down separately in separate books during the time of the divided kingdom. And so these 17 prophetic books, they are collected at the end of the Old Testament. And they're comprised of five major prophets, really four, because Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. So five major prophetic books and then 12 minor prophets. And they're called minor because of the length of their book, not because they're unimportant. All these are the later prophets. All these are the literary prophets because they wrote down uh, what they said. So this chart, very quickly, there they are in chronological order according to your Bible. These are the prophets that prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. These are the ones that prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. And over here are prophets that prophesied to other nations. And so that's the, the 17 prophetic books all collected at the end of the Old Testament. And kind of here's how it went. Almost immediately after the nation divided in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes of Israel plunged into idol worship. First it was Elijah and Elisha, the last of the early prophets, that challenged these idolatrous people to worship God alone. But years later, God raised up Amos and Hosea, and they continued to be God's mouthpiece even while the kingdom of Israel in the north was sliding into apostasy. You notice that they only have two prophets because their kings were so wicked. God lost patience with them. And finally, he allowed the northern kingdom to be overthrown by Assyria in 722 BC, and they destroyed its cities and they took its people captive. As Israel, the northern kingdom, was nearing its destruction, the smaller kingdom of Judah in the south, it was flip-flopping between the worship of Jehovah and the worship of pagan gods. Good kings tried to pull them back, but then a bad king would come to power and they'd reverse all those efforts. And Joel and Isaiah and Micah, they spoke for God to the people of Judah 
during those years before the northern kingdom fell. So they're watching this, this slow motion train wreck in the northern kingdom and they're begging the people, please turn back to God or that's going to happen to us. And then after the northern kingdom fell, Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah, they all pleaded with the people, please turn back to God before it's too late because now it's our turn. We've had too many wicked kings and the balance is tipped and we're going to face judgment like the northern kingdom did. Please turn back before it's too late. And then all of a sudden it was too late. Babylon attacked the nation. Three separate waves of invasion beginning in 605 BC. They took their young men captive. And then finally after a two-year siege, the city of Jerusalem fell and their beloved temple was destroyed and almost all of the people were carried away as captives in 586 B.C. Even then, in the darkest days of the nation, God was not without a voice. Because although the prophets warned of judgment, they also spoke of restoration. You'll read the prophetic books and you'll think God is mad at his whole creation. But then you flip a chapter and all of a sudden he's promising, I will give back to you what the locust has eaten. And it's, it's amazing. On the day Jerusalem was destroyed, the prophet Jeremiah was there. And on that day, he wrote the book that we know as Lamentations. And somehow that, he was called the weeping prophet. His whole life was sad. He begged people to turn back to God and they ignored him. And mistreated him. But on the darkest day of his life. And on the darkest day of Israel's history. While their beloved temple is being destroyed. And it's in flames. He wrote the book of Lamentations. Weeping over Jerusalem. But he somehow in the center of that little book. Managed to catch the single ray of sunlight. That penetrated the dark clouds of doom. And here's what he said. Whew, on the worst day of his life. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Oh, God could wipe us all out, but it's of his mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. Guess what? His mercy, his compassion, they are new every morning. And he looks up while the temple's in flames and the city's being destroyed and the people are screaming and they're being carried away captive. And he says to God, great is thy faithfulness. I hate what's going on today, but here's what I know. God, you're faithful on this, the worst day of my life, and you'll be faithful tomorrow on the next day of my life. Hmm. No, it didn't matter what happened. God was not without a voice because among those young men who had been taken captive to Babylon there were a couple of people Ezekiel he labored among the Jewish captives and prophesied to them and then there was Daniel who ended up in the royal court and was used to interpret dreams and to give God's word to the rulers of Babylon himself he wasn't the only one with a ministry to pagan nations. God also used Obadiah to prophesy to Edom, and he used Jonah and Nahum to prophesy to Nineveh. Daniel's ministry even spanned the entire 70-year Babylonian exile. Daniel ministered from the moment that Jerusalem fell and he was taken captive to the decree of Cyrus the Persian to say, you can go back home. Daniel's ministry covered that entire 70 years. And then as the people returned and they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and eventually the temple, once again, God was not without a voice. The prophets were there to serve as the voice of God. Haggai and Zechariah, they, they challenged them during this time. And then at the very end of the Old Testament, when the people were backsliding once again, Malachi was the last person, the last prophet to speak for the Lord. And these are the last two verses in his prophecy and in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's talking about John the Baptist. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 
It's going to be certain disaster, except there's going to be a man arise in the spirit and the anointing of the prophet Elijah. And it's going to be, in, do you remember King Herod thought John the Baptist was Elijah brought back from the grave? John the Baptist, his ministry was so much like Elijah. So after the Old Testament is done and it's a total disaster, God still had a voice and God still had a plan. The prophetic books cover a period of about 400 years and then God went silent for 400 years leading up to the New Testament. The Old Testament could have ended so very differently if only the people had listened to the voice of God's prophets. And that hasn't changed very much today. Now many people think the role of a prophet is to foretell, to speak something about the future. But most of the time, brothers and sisters, the role, role of a prophet is not to foretell the future. It's to forthtell, to speak a word from God to people right now. Revelation 19.10 says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Aren't you grateful that anointed men and women stand in this pulpit and we're in meetings with them? We've had some people come by here and just launch a prophetic word over this congregation like a guided missile. I believe in that stuff. I thank God for that stuff. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In fact, you remember when Jesus occur, uh, appeared to those two disciples on the road uh, back to their home in Emmaus. He said to them, these are the words which I spake to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying the whole Old Testament points to me if you're paying attention. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And that's what we've been trying to do in this little series. When you're reading the prophetic books, it really helps to know the background. Let, let me help you with this. Because this is a, a big section of scripture in the Old Testament and it's hard to slog through. When you're reading the prophetic books, if I can give you one suggestion, it really helps to know the background if you want it all to make sense. Here, here's the background. Ask yourself these questions. What nation is this prophet speaking to? Is it the northern kingdom of Israel? Is it the southern kingdom of Judah? Is it some other nation? Is he prophesying before or during or after the captivity? That, that affects what he says. Is the nation being governed at this time by a good or a bad ruler? What is this prophet's usual occupation? Is he a shepherd? Because that affects how he talks. And, and what circumstances have unfolded in his life or in the life of the nation? You say, well, wow, that's complicated. No, that information is easily obtainable in any Bible dictionary or any Bible commentary or... On the internet, you can use it for more than spying on your friends on Facebook. You can use the internet for amazing purposes. Well, that really went off like a bomb, didn't it? What do they call that? Trolling, isn't it? Anyway. Just go online. Google will help you study the Bible. Search for this. Book of Book of Isaiah, book of Jeremiah, you can find amazing things. And doing just a little bit of homework before you delve into that book, even if it's in your daily Bible reading, read a couple of paragraphs online about what's going on in that book and it will help increase your understanding. Now, said all that, I'm almost done. When we read the Bible, we're not looking for a historical lecture or all of that. What we're looking for is a word from the Lord. So whether you're reading law or land or rain or rebuild or poetry or prophecy be on the lookout for God to speak to you even through prophecies that were uttered centuries ago and remember that sometimes prophecies have more than one fulfillment there are things written in the word of God that were written to Israel but Paul gave us permission in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11 to say all these things were written that happened to them are written for our examples. So sometimes there's a prophecy that was to ancient Israel, but you can claim that for you. You have permission in the word of God. Uh, when we were in Bible school, I'll, I'll close here tonight. I got uh, uh, two more quick verses. But when we were in Bible school, if you'd have been in Bible school with me, you might have seen this. Uh, isn't that a complicated looking monster? That chart is called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. 
And, and it's actually an amazing thought. Because if you stand way over here where that prophet is, prophets looked through history. They looked through time. They looked into the future. And they saw many things. The prophets, they saw Jesus' birth. They saw Calvary. They saw Pentecost. They saw the Antichrist. They saw the Second Coming. They saw the Millennial Age. They saw many things. But the prophets, see, they couldn't see this valley right here. They thought it was all going to happen at the Messiah's first appearing. None of the prophets had any understanding that there would be 2,000 years between his first appearing and his second appearing. That's why Israel was expecting a conqueror that was going to overthrow the Romans and lead him to victory and establish his eternal kingdom. They were expecting that at his first appearing because the prophets, they didn't see that valley in the middle. They, they saw many things. But none of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, th this chart, we studied that. That's even more complex. But there's your prophets. And, and the lines going this way are the things that they saw. But again, there's a bubble in the middle. They didn't understand that there would be 2,000 years between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. And that's why in the prophets, they just go from one thing to the other. And, and you've got understanding that, that even the Old Testament prophets didn't have. Isaiah said about the Messiah that the Messiah will proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus actually stood up in a synagogue and read that prophecy in Luke chapter 4. But see, 2,000 years hangs on that comma right there, on that second line. The first time he came, it was the acceptable year of the Lord. He brought us salvation. But the next time he comes, it's going to be the day of vengeance of our God. And so when Jesus stood up in the synagogue 2,000 years ago and read that prophecy, he stopped at the comma and sat down because that was what he was here to do, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to set every wrong right. He's going to banish the devil once and for all. And he's going to parade his bride through the halls and the streets of heaven in front of all the holy angels because Jesus is in love with you, his church. Last scripture and I'm done. Thank you for your patience tonight with this long lesson. So how should we live knowing that? That we're in that 2,000 year period between the first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. How should we live knowing what even the Old Testament prophets didn't know? Here's how we should live. Titus, Paul wrote it to this young man. For the grace of God, Titus, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. Everyone say past tense. God's grace appeared when he came the first time. It appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Everyone say present tense. So because he came the first time and established this kingdom, and you have the honor and the privilege of being in this kingdom, you should be living soberly and, and righteously and godly in this present world. But this isn't the end. Looking for the second appearing. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you feel smart? Don't you feel important? You know something that even all those Old Testament prophets, they didn't see. You understand that Jesus came the first time to establish his kingdom and give you salvation. You understand that you live for him today because you're part of his kingdom. But we also understand that he's coming again. And when he comes back, that's going to be the greatest day of your life. You may have had some wonderful experiences here on earth. I promise you, they all pale. They are a paltry image of that day when you're taking one step down some main street in Fredericton and the next step you're in the air and the next step after that you're on streets of gold. It's amazing. And we're going to meet all the saints that have gone on before. That's what the prophets point us toward.
Oh my, I'm done. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Lift up your voice in the sanctuary and bless the name of the Lord because it's Jesus who gave us all of this. It's his word. It's his kingdom. It's his salvation. It's his church. He is the one that receives all the praise and all the honor and all the glory forever and forever and forever and forever. Oh my goodness. Would you stand to your feet? I'm finished. We're going to head out shortly. But just lift up your hands and your voice into the atmosphere. Fill this room with praise to God. Fill this room with thanks to God. Fill this room with prayer to God. The Bible is given to you so you can have a relationship with the God who created you and the God who is coming back for you. It's a blessing to understand the Word of God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. 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 Lord Jesus, I love you. I'm so grateful for this holy book that I get to teach and preach from. And I'm so grateful for your church your plan, your people, your body, your bride. I'm so grateful. Jesus, you've called us and you've given us a hope that this world can't destroy even on the worst days of our lives. And I thank you for that hope. I thank you for that hope. Jesus, help us to understand your word. We want to understand it. Jesus, God put a fire in some of these precious people to pray through the scripture, to pray the Psalms, to pray those words and, and to let you move in their hearts and lives. Lord God, we give you all the praise and all the thanks and all the glory and what a privilege it is to be in your house tonight. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus.